Bookworm Games, Episode 6, Paula, the Pole Star. Welcome back, one and all. I'm Wesley Schantz, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Allow me to explain. I got a little carried away in-game, and I'm now as far as Threed, but I have lots to say about Tucson first, starting with the Pole Star Preschool and the psychic girl who lives there, who's been kidnapped, or allowed herself to be kidnapped, who telepathically reaches out to you in dreams, and who will be by her side for the rest of the game, with some brief exceptions. She's Paula, or whatever you named her, the girl foretold in that legend of the Apple of Enlightenment. And I hope you knew you could count on me to come back for that low-hanging fruit at some point. I did refrain from talking about sharks and jets, and Romeo and Juliet, uh, in the past few weeks, but an allusion to the central myths of East and West simultaneously. Now, fruit of knowledge of good and evil in Genesis, Buddha's enlightenment, this will have to be an episode to itself at some point. But I was saying how I was getting ahead of myself. I already put out last week's podcast on a Thursday when I talked with Ben Koslowski of Watchmen 33, and I should point out that he was also the first guest, if I'm not mistaken, that Corey Olson Tolkien professor had on his podcast back when it was just a whippersnapper, and so I hope that bodes well. As a result, I'd intended to take uh, this past weekend to work on some other things and to take a break from Bookworm, but then I was worried that I'd forget what I wanted to say about Tucson if I left it too long. And then in planning out a little of the rest of this series, it looks like I want to have some conversations about once a month or so, and then I'll treat every location in the game for about three weeks. And so I should be on schedule to complete the game sometime in the fall. And that's the time of year that I really like to read Philip Pullman. And so I'm planning to make that uh, The Golden Compass and His Many Worlds the subject of my next series of bookworm games. So they're not video games, right? And so you have to wait and see how this fact fits in with the bookworm project. Uh, I felt like I might have come across as being too dismissive of J.K. Rowling uh, a few weeks ago. No doubt I'm just jealous that her fame has eclipsed Pullman somewhat. Um, and I think she gets the unappreciated values of simple kindness just right. She gets the never-to-be-overstated importance of love, which lays down the life for the beloved. And her Potter books amply extol that, and the way that good and evil are juxtaposed, the way the scar of that love or hate has left its mark on the boy who lived, is all very interesting. But where I think the story falters is in some of the glib workmanship around the wizarding world, how Hogwarts and Hogsmeade are admirably cozy and populated with delightful creatures and characters, but their whole portrayal is just sort of forced, uh, how they magically coexist alongside a world of ours which is made out to be so mundane. Um, it seems a little silly beside the rest of what's at stake in these books. So I thought that the role of magic in the setting was by far the least developed part of that story. And as much as I enjoyed reading them, I don't ever feel like really reading them again the way I do some of my favorite books from childhood, like Philip Pullman's or Terry Pratchett's. Or recently I read The Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle again, uh, just in time for the film, which I have yet to see. And I, I continue to wonder at their ideas, their craft, and to learn from them and put into practice what I can. So in today's episode I wanted to talk um, even more than usual about such role models, going back again to Shakespeare, 
and to Milton and Keats, poets much admired by Pullman, William Blake, and also to the well of water that's not just for wishing on, but for living, as they say, to the nativity story in the Gospels and the story of Abraham and Isaac before that. But first, to set the scene, at least, with the world of Earthbound. And I apologize for all these rambling prefatory remarks, but it's just really my way of thinking through the material, seeing how I can try to weave it all together, teaching and learning and games and stories and life. So thank you for listening to my long story, as Buzz Buzz says. If you can hold up in your brushes with rambling evil mushrooms and figure out how to deal with the spores that they scatter and the un-Mario-esque shrooms that sprout from your head, holding the controller in a new configuration, and finally finding a use for the quack healer at the hospital, you'll find that the great woods encircling Onet to the south function only as a liminal space. For better or worse, it's not one you can explore, but it simply gives the game its chance to load a new town map. And there's no, t there's no world map to explore in Earthbound, which is interesting to think about why that choice was made. You, meet, you remain embedded in locations, so this is a world held up close, not a sort of coordinate grid on which to peg a few places which exist in real detail for you to interact with, the way it is with other games that have a world map. Now, on arriving in Tucson, you have your chance, briefly, to ride a bike, and you can go as far as the cave that leads to Peace Forest Valley, or down to the tunnel blocked, not by police this time, but by ghosts, the outrunners of the undead, who have infested the next town over. So make much of your time on the bike while you may. Ring the bell with the R button and smile away because you'll probably want to bring a teddy bear with you before long. You can't ride a bike with a teddy bear, as everyone knows. And then you'll have other friends behind you the rest of the game. And for some reason, there's just no baskets or tandem or multi-seat bikes to be found. When you've had enough of the wind in your face and whistling, send the bike home via Escargo Express for your sister to keep for you. I like to imagine her taking it out for rides while you're away, having adventures of her own with all those items that you send. You can free up more space in your backpack by parting with the town map, too, especially if you have a player's guide or a handy internet screen or just a decent memory of where things are. And you can send the pencil eraser, too, once you've fed and invested in Apple Kid, not the more presentable orange kid, incredibly hot as he may be, and tidy and mouseless as his house appears, his inventions are all in vain. And once you've locked horns with Everdred, who only in spraining his ankle, leaping down from his roof, gives you the chance of victory. Oh, and grab the for sale sign before proceeding as well. It's another in the running jokes about reading, since people can somehow see it no matter how far into the wild you go. When you hold it up, they'll come running, puffing, and excited to buy things you don't need. Try it out with the fresh eggs which after a few steps will hatch into peeping chicks and a few more clucking chickens, and they can be sold for ludicrous profits. In Tucson, the hippies and the bag ladies and the cops have blue faces, and many of the adults have gone through the valley swarming with restive oaks and little UFOs to join the happy happiest cult painting everything blue in their commune. We'll say more about this uh, and the two towns as reflections of one another next week. But the most important person who's missing now is not a parent, but a girl, your dream girl. And in some sense, the archetypal dream girl, Paula, though she has a personality of her own. In the preschool that she runs with her mom, you can see the range of reactions to her kidnapping. The children are distraught, 
some amazingly articulately so, perhaps attesting to Paula's skill as a teacher and caretaker, and perhaps to the more widespread nature of psychic powers in the vicinity. They all look up to her, the way Ness's friends in the treehouse look up to him, and the way all of us look up to someone, whether it's a parent or a role model or some leader, that in our attempt to fashion some ideal of ourselves, that's how we hope to see ourselves in the world. Now, Paula's parents represent some extremes of faith in her abilities, of hope in her safety and of love for their daughter. Her mother blithely carries on, secure in the belief that everything will be all right. None of this will have a lasting negative in impact on anyone before it turns out all right. So it's an unsettling, if a majestic, degree of faith on her part. A little difficult to believe, right? To have faith in, in turn. To believe that it's sincere. You know, perhaps she's putting on a front of strength for the benefit of the kids. But somehow it does seem genuine. And then Paula's dad, on the other extreme, is frantic. He's engaged in magical thinking happens when you lose things, of course. He thinks her favorite food, pie, will bring her back, as though she were like a cat, you know, like the cat that's perched on the preschool roof, which anyhow never seems to stir for anything, even when the fuzzy pickles man drops down. And clearly, uh, her dad only tries to say the brave things, while all his actions give the words the lie. Yet his relief will be all the more touching when you do return with his daughter at last. And of Ness's feelings, again, we really get no hint. He simply stands in as the canvas on which your own may be painted and expressed. So for my part, here's what the pole star connotes. I think of Cleopatra's lines on the death of Antony, among the saddest and the strangest lines I know of, because it's the death of an ideal that she mourns. And so this poet, at least, believes that the streams of idealization in romantic love flow both ways and are mutual between Cleopatra and Antony, between Egypt and Rome, the woman and the man, the east and the west, or south and north, right? If any of my Uruguayan friends are listening, I haven't forgotten you. And her ideal can seem to survive even the errors and foibles and harsh words and unheard words throughout this play, having been impressed as deeply once as Enobarbus's great speech implies. But perhaps that love cannot survive despair, the prospect of a world without the beloved in it. Instead of that, the cold embodiment of everything that his genius revolted at in Octavian. So let me read, read you guys some of these lines here. Uh, so when Antony dies, Cleopatra, The crown of the earth doth melt, my lord, O withered is the garland of the war. The soldier's pole is fallen. Young boys and girls are level now with men. The odds is gone, and there's nothing left remarkable beneath the visiting moon. So the pole there is perhaps the pole star, perhaps the soldier's standard or banner, or could even be that garlanded pole around which villagers danced, and hence symbolic of festivity and joy. Those are all question marked in the note on line 65 of Antony and Cleopatra, uh, the end of Act 4. Now, the, um, the poet may go further than just idealizing a person, of course. Why stop there? You can idealize love itself. 
as Shakespeare's Sonnet 116 would have it. Um, Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. So he has the image of the star guiding the sailor, which is a classic one there. Um, and yet that same sonnet speaker famously also undoes the fulsome and conventional praise of the beloved in such poems as the famous uh, sonnet 18. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Here it is. Uh, Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed, and every fair from fair sometime declines, by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderst in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest, so long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. The poem itself conserves the love, the beloved's beauty uh, and grace. And perhaps it alludes to the possibility of the child, all right, uh, and descendants carrying on that grace and beauty, which can only be sung in poems, but embodied. Not only sung in poems, but embodied, sorry. Um, and so you have this power of love that is beyond any particular love, right? Which animates it as the power of poetry animates any particular written version or expression. And then yet uh, leaves it yearning to express something which still escapes. Something, if you like, uh, higher, right? Like the star. There's the line in, in Keats' poem, Ode on a Grecian Urn. Melodies, uh, melodies heard are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Okay, this idea that the poem existing in some sense before it's written down is greater than the poem once it is expressed, and this sort of thing poets love to celebrate. Shakespeare celebrates it unstintingly, and it's both implicit in his wordplay and lavish poetry, and then at times it's explicit in the speaker's ideas. So shifting then to the great English epic and lyric poets, we've got Milton and his eccentric reader, William Blake, and John Keats. In them, the Dantean image of the stars, which recurs to give order to the whole divine comedy at the end of each of its three parts, is fused with these most human of poets, Shakespeare and his followers. We get lines like these. So in William Blake, the tiger... And I have this beautiful illustrated edition that my friend sent me. 
Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry in what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, and what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp, dare its deadly terrors clasp? And when the stars threw down their spears, and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee, tiger, tiger burning bright in the forests of the night? What immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? And in this illustrated edition, you have to see it, that the tiger is so powerful and fearsome, bright in front and dark behind. And the tree that he's under has this kind of face on it, you know, almost, almost as if it's in awe and dread of the tiger, too. Nature itself in awe of the creator's works. So, so much for William Blake. Uh, John Keats, um, the poem Bright Star, Bright star, would I were steadfast as thou art, not in lone splendor hung aloft in the night, and watching with eternal lids apart, like nature's patient, sleepless eremite, the moving waters at their priest-like task of pure ablution round earth's human shores, or gazing on the new-fallen mask of snow upon the mountains and the moors. No, yet still steadfast, still unchangeable, pillowed upon my fair love's ripening breast to feel forever its soft fall and swell, awake forever in a sweet unrest, still, still to hear her tender-taken breath, and so live ever, or else swoon to death. And there we have, of course, the eternal nature of the stars contrasted or put in tension with the human desire for the beloved. Uh, we have lines like the one that's so misquoted in the title of a recent book. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. And that's from Julius Caesar, Shakespeare's play. Um, oh, of course, Milton. Sorry, we've got to read some of Milton's lines here. So in book one, after the fall of the angels, we hear about this. In ancient Greece, there we go, here it is, okay. So, nor was his name unheard or unadorned in ancient Greece, and in Alsonian land men called him Mulciber, and how he fell from heaven they fabled, thrown by angry Jove, Sheer o'er the crystal battlements, from morn to noon he fell, from noon to dewy eve, a summer's day, and with the setting sun dropped from the zenith like a falling star on Lemnos, the Aegean Isle. Thus they relate, erring. All right, so that's from around line 740 or so in book one of Paradise Lost by John Milton. So comparing one of the fallen angels to the story of Hephaestus, as told, for example, in Homer, Iliad, 
book one lines 591 or so this i'm finding in the footnotes and it's in brackets here zeus caught me by the foot and threw me from the magic threshold and all day long i dropped helpless and about sunset i landed in lemnos so the story of hephaestus in the greek myth is recast in milton's conception to be a story about a fallen angel in that fall uh, that pre precedes uh, that of man. Uh, then, of course, there's also uh, the the association of of Lucifer with uh, the morning star, and he has that around uh, book five, line seven oh eight. His countenance as the morning star that guides the starry flock allured them, and with lies drew after him the third part of heaven's host. So that's just an example of the uh, the dangerous nature of, of admiring stars, I suppose, if, if the star that you set your sight on happens to fall, right? happens to uh, betray its trust. <clears throat> and then uh, I did want to look at those uh, famous passages in, in the gospel stories. Um, for some reason, I thought this was in Luke, but I guess the shepherds are in Luke. Maybe that's why I was thinking that. It's in Matthew. Um, Matthew 2, chapter 2. Got the wise men and the star. Let's see if I've got it here. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. So that's just a little bit of that. Then skipping ahead to verse 9. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Love that King James language. Uh, that's Matthew, book two, star that leads to the Savior, even for those from distant lands, from distant walks of life. And uh, of course, this uh, nativity story is, uh, I don't know what you'd say, preceded uh, by the story in Genesis of Abram, later called Abraham. And, and so in the first quote I have here, he's still Abram. This is Genesis 15. Verse 5. And he brought him forth abroad. Uh, maybe I should start at, line f at verse 4. Boy. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. All right, so that, the number of the stars. So again, the descendants here is talked about. Those who come after you. You, you believe in that as you believe in uh, as you believe in anything, your own salvation or your own love or whatever it might be. 
So then skipping ahead a bit, Genesis 22, this is verse 17. We've got uh, a little before that, sorry, 15. This is right after the Abraham and Isaac scene, which I just don't even feel qualified to speak about, but by all means read it. Genesis 22, and then this is verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, first time was to stop him from killing his son, um, and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall be shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Man. So the blessing is not just for Abraham, but for the whole world through him, through the son that he was willing to slay, but was restrained at the final moment. And then uh, this is repeated again, um, at least once more. I mean, I, again, not really qualified to speak about this stuff, but I can at least point you towards it. So Genesis 26, uh, verse 4 here, the, the, the promise is repeated. Uh, this is when there's a famine. Um, and I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Okay, so promise of land, of salvation from death, in this case, specifically the famine, but I guess more generally. And then the promise that there will be an inheritance for one's, one's children. All right, so fitting stuff to read on uh, Easter weekend here. Um, as children, many of us are supposed to dream of being astronauts. Well, I wanted for a long time to be an astronomer because of this universe book. I think it's a National Geographic book. The pictures it had were these mythic namesakes of the artists' renditions of the planets and the constellations, the gods, these stories. And I would pine over, or pour over, the, sorry, these, these pictures, the picture of the world tree and the Norse myth. They had a great rendition of that. The picture of Mercury with his wings. And, and maybe it's partly all these, these books, uh, these pictures, that made me fall in love with Philip Pullman's work. Uh, which I read first as a kid, but again, I, I reread it, and it's still so good. I fell in love with his work because his heroine, Lyra, is captivated by the idea of north, of the aurora, the northern lights. The possibility of getting to travel there and see them helps explain her falling for the temptation of the glamorous Mrs. Coulter, despite her clearly Miss Coulter's clearly malignant soul as portended by her golden monkey, Damon. And I've got a, a little bit to read from that, too. Um, for example, here, um, just a paragraph from page 23 of the Golden Compass in my book. Lord Asriel put a new slide in the lantern frame. It showed the same scene. As with the previous pair of pictures, many of the features visible by ordinary light were much dimmer in this one. And so were the curtains of radiance in the sky. But in the middle of the aurora, high above the bleak landscape, Lyra could see something solid. She pressed her face to the crack to see more clearly, and she could see the scholars near the screen leaning forward too. As she gazed, her wonder grew, because there in the sky was the unmistakable outline of a city, 
towers, domes, walls, buildings and streets suspended in the air. She nearly gasped with wonder. So I love situations like that. You get them in Tolkien often too, where the characters in the story are held spellbound by wonder. And so your wonder is in a way primed and even reflected, magnified by their own. Um, so she goes to rescue someone too, like Ness rescuing Paula. And in her story, it turns out other than she had imagined it. And it turns out that her story is just beginning. And so hopefully there will be more on that to come in the fall. I hope you'll stick with me for, for that. One last uh, earthbound consi consideration, a word which may be derived from the word for star, <laughs> consideration, um, for today uh, before I close. It struck me, I'm playing through this time, uh, that Paula is the only one of your four friends that you don't play as independently prior to their joining the quest. The brainy Jeff, Pooh, the prince from the east, each has his mini-quest before meeting up with Ness and Paula, and of Ness's own solo adventure so far we've seen in these episodes of the Overture and the Three on Onet. And I'm torn in how I feel about this decision on the game designer's part. On the one hand, they do try to make it clear that Paula could have escaped from the cabin on her own. And so it's her choice to wait for you there, to endure loneliness with just her teddy bear for company, and to endure a feigned powerlessness with confidence all along in her own potential, which is qu quickly and unmistakably going to be borne out because she can soon deal more damage than Ness against most foes, um, and particularly against major boss fights throughout the game. A PSI Psi freeze attack could have popped open the lock and uh, let her out of the cabin, and she could have leveled up against some crows and snuck past the cultists and returned home. No, instead... She stayed there for Ness to let him have this quest. Um, and what a great sacrifice this was. And what a better story it tells. Right? Her confidence is tempered by humility. Her brazenness by patience. And never playing as her, you are left to imagine what she is like up until you meet her. And then when you do meet her, she gives you this decisive... Um, uh, item for defeating the cult leader, uh, Carpenter, who's empowered with lightning like Jove, so that the only way to protect yourself is with a Franklin badge, of course. Scientific, experimental boldness and democratic canniness can overcome that mythic tyranny and bring down with love a deranged order that's untrue to its own promises. So, again, more on this stuff next time, but to recap, we've seen many of these examples of stars in literature and thought a little bit about what they might symbolize as something to look up to, to wish upon, to hold above you as a judge of your own actions, as a model uh, to follow or, or to be wary of. And hopefully all these examples are a little bit familiar and a little bit strange as seen through the lens of this quirky video game. Um, of course, in the background of some of these thoughts uh, are the recent podcasts by Jordan Peterson, where he talks about Pinocchio and Geppetto, and I imagine that Mr. Schmidt and I will be talking more about this at some point on side quests before too long. <laughs>
again, I'm looking forward to a few more episodes on Tucson. Hopefully a conversation in the near future again with one of my friends, co-workers in this great task of reading, playing, interpreting. And uh, thanks for listening. Take care.